Hello and welcome to Plants and Babettes, the podcast where we talk about plant science and what's been happening in the world of science um, in the last week. I'm Tegan. Hi, I'm Joram. And this is take two because we're having technical difficulties. <laughs> we ended the last show on technical difficulties and we're opening this one on technical difficulties. Which, yeah, if anything, it means we're being like <laughs> flowy. What's what's? I can't even think of the word. Um, cohesive. <laughs> yeah, cohesive. Consistent, cohesive. Um, <laughs> everything is working well in the world. English is not hard at all. It's great that we have like what's ninety episodes. We have like ninety episodes, and we're still struggling w with technology often enough. Um, I think that's normal. I think that's acceptable and normal, and we're doing fine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're doing fine. We're doing fine. <laughs> Yeah, how is it going? Did you do anything fun? I just made up a song about being an echo gecko, a gecko yeah. echo, an echo gecko. Wait, what was I? I was an echo gecko. <laughs> it's I, not fun for anybody else listening because um, you'd have to hear the song and it was a really good song, but I'm shy now. Um, it's lost now in the in the void of technical difficulties. Uh, what have I been doing? I'm I'm basically just like panicking about life at the moment. Um, I'm looking for a new flatmate, and I'm also like at the stage of renewing my visa so that they will let me stay in this country. Um, and it's it's very it's very it's very challenging. <laughs> I don't know. I think um from working from living in Germany for a while, I have like very high trauma about doing anything bureaucratic like it was in a different language so german which i was never that fluent at and, and bureaucratic german is like a whole other language um to the point where i i remember showing documents to german people and quite often the german people would be like i don't know what this means like i don't know and even like to to get my visa connected to my work i had to show a contract that i was working but i also had to have a written statement saying that I was working, like a separate written statement. And even like the HR at my place of work was like, we don't know what this is. And I'm like, I feel like that's <laughs> a bit on you because it's like, I don't want to be a joke, but it's not my country. <laughs> and no, I just, no, no. I just you, don't know. You were the, literally the first international person first to work at this International Institute of Research. Um, so how could they no, know? No, no, in fairness, that was like, it was like a new thing because I, I mean, again, being on really short contracts, you had to like go do this process every year or every couple of years, which was just constantly stressful. Um, it was impossible to get appointments at the place where you did it. Like you had to like try and book the appointment by basically like standing in front of the computer. So there was like this weird thing where appointments became like tickets to see like Beyonce's last ever concert everybody wanted appointments because there weren't enough appointments so there was a black market like people were scalping tickets to go to the place where you renewed your visa and the obvious thing to do here is say hey you can't sell tickets so when you book the ticket you have to put your name on the ticket and if your name doesn't match your ID you can't go to the appointment done problem solved completely logical problem instead the solution was to make there not be tickets available online so you had to physically go in person to the place <laughs> to then book an appointment <laughs> for another day at that same place and it's just like I have a full time job and like my visa depends on me actually attending my place of work like I can't afford to take days off work to go in. but you know this is oh my anyway <laughs> that so that was the past that is all behind us now and then you need like 40 documents um 
And like often when you first come in as a foreigner, you don't have the right documents either because you just don't have that that history of documentations in that country. So you're bringing like 10 other variations, hoping that one of those extra things or a combination of those other 10 variations will work as a substitute for the document that you know you don't have and you can't have until you've been working in that country for four years. Like... So I would just like rock up at this this visa place in Germany with like a suitcase of things. Like I would just like <laughs> print out my paycheck, like my bank account details for the last like three years. And I'd be like, is this what you... And the people there would get so annoyed. They're like, why do you have this? I'm just like, I just... I can't afford that you tell me to go away and don't give me my visa. Like I just... Somewhere in this pile, there's the right document. <laughs> you just got to help me find it. <laughs> But to be fair... This is also how I do my runs to like official government business. I have never Terrifying. Uh, any idea what they really want from me. Sometimes there's a list online, but sometimes that list is outdated or the people yep. don't know about the list. And so you well, bring what's in the like, list and they're like, why do you bring this? And like, there was a list. They told me to bring it. I'm like, yeah, but you don't need this. You I mean, this is like the, there's often like a name for the document And the document is like like this thing and it's got a name, but you don't know what that name means. And you're trying to guess from what it says what it might mean. But you you might try to do that and then you get there and they're like, oh, no, this is not just like something you can make up based on this name. It's like a proper form you would have to fill out. So that was like this thing about no, but they don't link of to working it. at the... Yeah, they don't link to it. And you can't Google it. Because links, like. links are banned in Germany. Anything hotlinked is like a horror in Germany. You can't link on. I mean, there's <laughs> literally... I, I had in the past year or so, I had for, for like baby stuff, had to fill out forms that were sent to me as physical copies on colored paper. So it was impossible to scan <laughs> and make copies of because like a dark red with like black ink on them. And I had to fill them out in multiple copies and then send them back by mail hoping that they're not lost in the mail and I could not make copies of them because whenever you put them in a scanner or anything they would turn out to be like this completely dark and incomprehensible mm. mess and this Possibly was like the deliberate. official way to do it and I tried to google stuff and try to find the form before and as I called them I was like I, I know I need this form. I can't find it. Like, yeah, yeah, we're going to send it to you. And it's like, why is it not written somewhere? And it's like, yeah, so it's it's terrible if you are a, not a native speaker, but it's not. It's only like still a tiny little bit better if you are a native speaker. You're still I mean, completely so lost. Like now in Britain, I'm a native speaker and I'm, there's like a lawyer from my company handling this stuff and I still find it very, very stressful. And part of that is probably because of like the the stress induced by years of doing this in Germany. But like generally I find this, this life stuff very, makes me very tense. And so now I have to sign documents, um, but I don't have a printer. Like I don't know. I don't think this is a new public service announcement that nobody knows. Like you... Uh, Millennials don't own printers. Like, by and large, we don't. Our work does, and we just steal photocopies and printing from work, and that's fine. Like, that's how it's done. Yeah, Yoram, you probably have, like, a 2D printer, a 3D printer, a 4D printer, and something that, like, breaks the space-time <laughs> continuum because you're a hipster. But, like... <laughs> I once bought a hip. I once bought a printer, and then it ran out of ink, and then it cost more to buy the ink than to buy a new printer. So I was just like, I I don't want this printer anymore. Like this is not. Yeah. 
So, like, just to go to print out a document now, it's, like, a 30-minute walk and then, like, you know, fighting COVID masses in a post office with it. Also not enjoyable. <laughs> and then I don't have a scanner. So, even once I printed it, it's not like I can scan that back in again. I'm, like, taking photos with my phone and try to look like, make it look like it's a scanned copy because, like, it's supposed to be a scanned copy. Oh, my gosh. Like... <laughs> I don't. <laughs> yeah. Everything should be online. <laughs> I don't know why this is so hard. I yeah. don't want to do it in person. Like, yeah. And now, of course, like I have to. They have to do the biometric scanning of my face. Um, I assume <laughs> they just think I'm pretty and they want to look at me. Um, that sounds but of very course, sci-fi. Like, <laughs> it's just like going in a machine and just like scanning like in some Star Trek type of thing. Yeah, I don't know. Can I not just Zoom call you? Like, I feel like this seems. <laughs> But I have to go to, like, the place. And, of course, it's, like, the furthest away that it can pop. Anyway, <laughs> it's hard. Life <laughs> is so hard. Oh, my. Oh, my. Yeah. Oh, I'm so dramatic. I still yeah, because- have, like, anxiety okay. from my studies, um, from all the paperwork, that at mm. one point, like, I have these reoccurring nightmares that somebody will be like, hey, you didn't fill out, like, Form 37B, and therefore yeah. your degree is nullified and doesn't exist anymore and i still have that because like when you grow up in germany this is like a constant threat that something somewhere doesn't work out and they're just like oh yeah you did all the work like you technically did all the things but there's like there's a paper that's missing and without the paper everything else is is technically passed but bureaucratically not passed (laughs) bureaucratically i mean that's also my thing like i i think the lawyer thinks i'm completely annoying and insane because like I to get this visa, it's based on me having my job and my job is based. I have to have a PhD to do my job. So in order to prove that I am like the right person for the job, I had to show them my my PhD certificate, like the, the thing that says I'm a doctor now. And I show that to the lawyer and they're like, OK, we have that now. We will upload that onto a file for the visa people. So you don't need to bring that into your appointment. But of course, the document checklist says bring that in. And the lawyer's like, don't worry, you don't need to bring it in. So then I was like, email the lawyer. I was like, okay, I know you've said this, but are you sure I don't need? And I'm still thinking now, like, maybe I just bring it in. Like, maybe <laughs> just in case. I just, just like. I would have like a secret, like, backup little, like, binder that you don't bring out in the first hand. But when they're like, oh, yeah, but we, like, there's this document missing. And he's like, yeah, but it was sent. Now we can't see it here. Then you bring out, like, the secret binder and be like, I knew it. <laughs> I knew it all along. I mean, the thing is, like, at the end of the day, firstly, like, if it if they do need it, it's not like the lawyer is going to go to my house, back to my house and get it for me and bring it there. It's, it's going to be me going to another appointment, taking another holiday from work, like, using up my annual leave to do this. And, like, of course, if it goes wrong, it's not the lawyer who gets, like, booted out of the country. So it's... <laughs> At the end of the day, I'm kind of like, I, I should be able to rest responsibility on other people's hands, but wow. <laughs> anyway. Oh, that sounds like a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> this is just, um, but yeah, I- any, anyone let me know if you also feel insane anxiety about doing anything vaguely adulting. I think that's <laughs> the, I mean, and to be honest already, the amount of like brain like occupancy that I could like get rid of like this kind of brain mild anxiety that could be removed once I moved to England and I was in a country with my native language like now if I don't know I can just like ring up and ask at least or like just say hey what what's happening and I might be like a bit culturally wrong but I'm not at least going to be like completely wrong with what I'm saying yeah so that's already such a big step um 
But yeah. <laughs> Great. <sighs> anyway, sorry, I ranted a lot. You wanted to talk about Twitter. <laughs> uh, yeah, but only briefly now. Um, I I just felt very happy and and I'm chasing the high now of getting a lot of likes because we had like a tweet that went really well last week. Um, based like I, I made a mashup of um, an XKCD comic and there was pretty much like perfect storm of all the good things together and then so it went well but now I want so more the perfect storm is like XKCD and you XKCD like uh, plant science inside jokes being very quick with it and um, I think doing it well by not just like by like it took a little bit of effort to writing the stuff to, like on top of the original image so it doesn't mm. didn't look like a mess um and that went then very well we got like way over a thousand likes and it's so much more than we usually get and now i need more now <laughs> i want this every week it was like like pure dopamine like it was this massive rush um like you you muted the tweet because like the notifications were annoying like they were like they went straight to like my my uh, what's this like the center in the brain it is the dopamine center where it's yeah. like um but then i had like I, I knew that it was completely pointless and kind of stupid but i like went back like several times a day to the tweet and was like looking at numbers go bigger and like <laughs> yes numbers <laughs> numbers must be higher um and so yeah i need more of this now so i need to find like more i i have to do more viral tweets now it's my my quest now <laughs> so i can yeah i actually i paid twitter for likes on that tweet i mean if that works then pay them again <laughs> that seems like a good segue um to my own quick foray onto the twitterverse this week where <laughs> i go onto twitter see something horrible and like doom scroll for a few minutes to see how horrible it is and then just like reject like eject myself backwards away from my phone um so I, I was just like looking around and i don't even know who who wrote this and i'm not going to try to find it because we don't need to like have people hating on other people on twitter but they they basically wrote a tweet that was like um science twitter should stay about science and not be about other things that are non-science mm -hmm. and i stayed on that tweet like long enough to read the comments and thankfully overwhelmingly the people responding were like this is the stupidest thing i've ever heard like i'm a scientist but i'm also xyz um and you know i also have other political beliefs or thoughts and opinions and that's fine and that's good and that's like not just it's fine it's like that's how it should be um so that was like overwhelmingly what was happening there yeah but i was also thinking like that kind of thing about science just being science it's, I mean, we've, we talk about this all the time, how problematic it is as an idea, because it's, I mean, it's it's just objectively stupid in that, <laughs> I mean, people who are only doing one thing with their lives, like, even if they're really, really good at that one thing, it's it's unlikely to bring the best to science um, as a community. But also, I think um, there's this thing where, like, our, our default of a scientist is still kind of this one type of scientist, um, you know? white middle-class dude in a lab coat like this is image of a default scientist and because of that having an identity that's not that kind of default identity now i'm again using like inverted commas is seen as like almost like having a hobby or like you know if you go to express that or even just mention like hey like like i am this i do this it's seen as like having something and when you put that together with that that obsession with only believing in science and only doing in science it's basically 
further punishing people for not being the default because it's like seeing this like if you're not the default you're you're that's that's almost you doing something outside of science because it's still viewed that science is like this this default which is so horrific and so (laughs) and i was just i was really really happy to see all these people sort of list all the things they are and their identities and what they do and what their hobbies are and you know who they love and what gives them joy and be like hey I'm a scientist, but also... Yeah. And we so often talk about, like, the humanity of scientists. Like, that scientists are also humans for the the better and the worse of it, right? Like, we talk about it, like, um, about biases that we bring into science because mm-hmm. we're humans, but also about, like, the good things that we bring into it. Like, our own, like, view on the on the world and how if we have, like, a diverse view on the world, we have better science, like, very in a very measurable way. So... Um, yeah, I I also completely disagree with the statement that science science accounts or scientists should just only stick to science because. Well, it was it was like science Twitter should stay science, and then a lot of people were like, um, I think what you're looking for is called LinkedIn and or ResearchGate. Like that exists, it's just not Twitter. Like Twitter is not. Yeah, or just like conferences, but avoid the coffee breaks. Like. <laughs> It's just like if you if you don't care for the people behind the science, then don't go where the people behind the science are. Just like read the table of contents of all the, of your favorite publications, and that's it. Then you get the pure science and very little of like personal stories. Yeah, yeah. It was it was to the point where it was like it seemed so out of touch with the reality that several people were like, "This is a joke, right? Like this is this must be somebody's trolling us." And I didn't seem like it was, but I'm not. <laughs> I mean, if it was a troll, it it got many more likes than your <laughs> XKCD. <laughs> like it got more comments. People were like, so they just wanted to say, no, this is wrong. Yeah, um, I think that's the next thing I should do. Like, be very, very troll. controversial, controversial, so that like I trigger the people to actually write something. Um, but at the same time, <laughs> I don't want to do that. Um, but what I want to do, Tegan, is segue very poorly and talk about plant science. Shall we do that? We can do that. My favorite plant. It's my turn today, and my favorite plant I'm going to speak about is a genus of plants that is um, found in New Zealand primarily, um, possibly in some other places. The the species I'm particularly interested in is Raulia eximia, but there's kind of a wider genus Raulia, um, which has several different species um, in it. Um, they're endemic to New Zealand. Raulia eximia has a Maori name, which is Tutahuna. Um, and I chose it because its name, its common name is the vegetable sheep and usually we're really against using common names only on the podcast because they do lead to a lot of misidentification and confusion um but this has the most beautiful name and it gets its name simply because when you look at it from a distance it looks like a sheep um so raulia species grow sort of in quite extreme environments they're they're found in um, mountainous regions so they're alpine plants um and these are very very harsh environments so when you're up high you have a problem that it's often quite cold um you often have not very nice soils so like it, it can be very rocky um hard to get your footing 
Um, there's not very many other plants to sort of protect you, so it can be also very windy. Um, so lots of like, you know, anything wind and rain or anything sort of forceful will come at you with big force because nothing else is buffering you. And on top of that, there's also often a lot of light. You're higher up and there's um, just a lot of like UV and very harsh light that's coming in. Um, and all of these things make it pretty hard to survive. And, th and that's, you know, why you don't see nice lush trees on the top of mountains. You tend to see things that are quite small and low to the ground. Um, and this is quite small and low to the ground, but it's it's not like right on the ground. It's kind of more of a roughly sheep-sized bush, so, shall we say, like <laughs> a large <laughs> sheep. Um, but the reason it's forming this sheep um, f in many different ways is to protect itself from this harsh environment. So it basically looks like a sheep because all of the stems and leaves are sort of pressed together in this very dense, hard, like convex mass. Um, so that it basically has almost a rounded shape, which means that there's not too much surface area to be attacked and everything is kind of huddled in and protecting it. So it's basically pretending it's a rock so that <laughs> things can like wash over it. Um, if you imagine if you have a branch sticking out and there's a strong gust of wind, that branch will snap off. But if you're kind of boulder shaped and or sheep shaped, um, <laughs> you can squat on the ground and things can flow over you. And it, it does look quite aerodynamic. It's got these sort of shapely curves that one might see on a sheep sheep um so on top of being kind of rounded sheepy shape it's also very pale like a sort of white sheep would be and this is again an adaptive thing so um the the leaves they have hair like trichomes these are just these like sort of thin hairs that you find on on leaves and also um they can be on on flowers and stuff and um yeah the hair is basically make it look woolly from a distance um, but they're also doing things like reflecting light um, so sort of preventing too many of those harsh UV rays coming into the actual leaf proper and of course another thing that hair like furry bits do is to insulate so it can also prevent the plant from becoming too cold and that's kind of also um, what that shape does so again like having all of this this mass tightly in together it really keeps the heat in and although like plants they're not mammals um they're not like you know animals they still do need to not freeze right like it is important to keep warmth in so all of these things are kind of helping them be insulated from the environment i'm looking at um, pictures and it looks like a mass of cauliflower flowing down a mountain and it's like very white and like but they do do photosynthesis right they're not one of these like weird white plants that lost their own photosynthesis and take advantage of other organisms no no I, i'm pretty sure it's it's like doing normal planty things i don't think there's anything up there that it could really be taking yeah. advantage of um i think it's just probably growing quite slowly i would guess because it's in this extreme environment that's that's my guess i didn't find much about um you know how it it does grow but it can get up to like five meters in diameter and like maybe um a meter tall something like that so it can get kind of big but i would guess that happens gradually yeah um yeah i mean on some pictures you can see some like green or yellowish parts of it i imagine that like depending on the season when you take the picture um it looks more or less green and well, I, the, the white is not the leaves like it's not that it's lacking chlorophyll it's just that it has all of these hairs mm -hmm. on top of it so um 
again, imagine the skin of the sheep and on top of it is the fur. <laughs> like, doesn't mean the skin's not there. It's just like it's covered by these kind of fluffy, furry bits. Um, yeah, which make it look like a sheep. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and apparently they're also like the when the leaves fall off and sort of get old and rot, they can also sort of be underneath the plant and maybe that can help again keep it warm but also you know trap moisture in there if that's because that can also be limiting if you're in a very cold environment um you know if it's not snowing much or if if it's only snow and you know so it has all of these really cool features um and my favorite quote i want to read is about let me just find it um (laughs) there was a laura that when Englishmen first arrived in New Zealand, their sheep jo- dogs thought the species were actually sheep and just tried to chase and herd the plants across the mountains. I'm sure that's I'm sure that's not true. Um, Poor doggies! It must be so frustrating <laughs> to I, bark at like a, a plant that doesn't move and doesn't go back into the herd. <laughs> yeah, um, I found this on um, Black the Blackman Laboratory um, a website, so I can put that in the show notes as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I thought they were a really cool species and genus. And that also led me to, like, when I was looking at vegetable sheep on Wikipedia. So there's about maybe like 20 species or so in this Raulia. But then at the bottom of the article, it says, see also vegetable lamb of Tartari, Mm -hmm. which I clicked on. And that's a mythical plant, (laughs) which is basically... It looks like a really big Arabidopsis. So it has kind of like a rosette and like flowing leaves at the bottom and then a stalk. And that stalk is connected to, um, it's basically the umbilical cord for a lamb. <laughs> and then a lamb grows oh my. on the top of that. And there was like all these myths around it, how like the lamb could be eaten and it tasted sweet like honey. Um, the lamb could eat all of the, the plants around it, but if that plant around it was removed and it could no longer reach because of the umbilical cord, it would then die. Um, all of these weird myths. And there's some suggestion that maybe it came from somebody seeing a cotton plant, which actually makes like a lot of sense when you see a cotton plant, you think that mm-hmm. that looks like wool, but it doesn't look like a plant part. Um but yeah, that seems like a very fun, not very plant related, but a very fun <laughs> place to go down. Um, <laughs> mythological understandings of where animals come from and like, yeah, mythological animals. It seems super cool as well. <laughs> yes. But anyway, yeah, the plant of today is the Raulia genus, which is a genus of species in New Zealand, which are named vegetable sheep because they look like sheep sitting on mountains. Diversity in the and this week it's my turn um and i actually don't remember where i stumbled across her but i'm talking about joanne achari today um i i know that what i found about her was a washington post article um that's entitled John Chori is harnessing plants to stop climate change. And um, that made me interested. And I, I read more and I really, really enjoyed reading more about her life. So she was born from Lebanese parents in the United States um, in a family of uh, with five siblings, which becomes uh, important later on when she talks about her, um, 
how why she likes working in a lab so much she compares it to her family life she says like in the family in a large big in a big family you have to get along you have to figure out how mm. to deal with all your siblings and you have to like have fights and like sometimes situations are not nice but in the end you all come together as a family and she compared that to some situations in a lab where you also you're sort of thrown in together with other people that you didn't necessarily pick if you are working in a lab if you're not the boss um, and you have to figure out how to get along much like you have mm. to figure out how to get along with your siblings because you also didn't pick them um so but you know a lot of hit people in your <laughs> i mean you can go further with your siblings and you can go with your colleagues in a lab i i imagine um but yeah so she was born in 1955 and um when she she did her studies like um in i think she was near boston so in, somewhere in the north uh, in the united states she grew up um but then she when she wanted to or when she had to decide what to study she again did something that was very relatable to myself because she sort of ruled out some things that she didn't want to do and ended up doing um, research on Arabidopsis. Uh, and so she went to Harvard and uh, she studied Arab Arabidopsis there for her graduate pro uh, project and um, from then on move moved on with like a, a postdoc and her own lab then at the Salk Institute in California, which is very well known to all plant researchers. Mm -hmm. Because the Salk Institute has this famous uh, Salk lines. These are like a catalog of pre-made lines that have insertions of DNA somewhere in the genome and that break certain genes. And they mapped all of them and then you can order them. And you're like, I'm interested in gene XYZ. And so you look in the catalog and look if there is something from Salk that has already knocked this gene out. And then you just order the line and then you can study them. Because they didn't study yeah. all the lines. They just created all of these different knockouts and there's like some stuff that makes it more complicated but overall Salk is like this basic resource that you just use in the lab all the time it's just like you you order primers from a company you order chemicals from another company and you order plants from the Salk institute um mm -hmm. uh and when she was doing her her research there first at harvard and then at the Salk institute she she grew plants in the dark um and you would imagine that just doesn't lead anywhere, really. Like, if you put a plant in the dark, it tries to grow for a while to find light, but eventually it will run out of energy and it will stop growing. Um, yeah. But there were some plants um, that were growing quite a bit, even in the dark. And th these were mutants. And she figured out, um, and she, she was interested what made them ignore the dark, pretty much. And uh, doing that, she researched um, this, these genes and she found the DET1 gene. That's like a regulator gene um, of a previously unknown pathway. And when she presented that, she says that um, the scientific establishment really tried to resist these findings. And she was presenting them being a woman and... There was like all of this horrible stuff happening. Like all the researchers would question her analyses. Uh, male classmates and colleagues would try to intimidate her with pranks and with pranks. With pranks, what are they like, pranking her with? They, they like in the articles that I read, there wasn't no like details what they did, but it was sort of like this hostile environment and like probably mm -hmm. some things where they were like, "Ah, oh, it's just fun, it's just fun." But if like everything combined just tells you like your findings are stupid. It can be pretty disheartening, but coming from this background again with like her five siblings, she sort of powered through it. And um, 
managed to quite impressively not only uncover like the function of this DET1 protein, she also uh, found like another gene, DET2, um, and then very systematically in her lab uncovered the entire signaling pathway from the cell surface where the signal arrives down to the nucleus where the signal is finally translated into some changes in gene expression. So she just like systematically took this entire system apart and could show how it worked and uh, how it can um, respond to the absence or presence of light without being um, a phytochrome, which is usually the system that plants use to sense light. Um, so that in itself is pretty impressive. And Detlef Weigel, another plant scientist from a Max Planck Institute for Developmental Biology, um, he said that uh, it really cannot be overestimated how huge a, contrib a contribution that is. Um, it really is at the very highest level. Um, if it would be in any other system but in plants, it certainly would have been honored with a Nobel Prize, um, which oh, wow. just gives sort of an impression of like the importance for the plant world um, that of the research that she did. So she didn't get a Nobel Prize, but she got like many other prizes. She got like the Breakthrough in Prize, uh, Breakthrough Prize in Life Sciences, the Gruber Genetics Prize, um, the UNESCO Award for Women in Science. Um, she's a member of the United States National Academy of Sciences and many other things. And she became the director of the Sork Institute, which is in itself a fairly big um, position to hold. Uh, and some other things that I found about her is that like uh, her students or people who work with her said that her mentorship extended way beyond the lab. Um, on conferences, she would act actually actively attend the poster sessions. So a poster session is usually where the people who don't get to hold big talks in front of the audience, but they just present. Yeah, it's junior just, researchers usually, like yeah. early career researchers, PhD students and master's students and like young postdocs. Exactly. They present their, their findings on a poster and then there's usually one or several poster sessions where they stand in front of their poster and hope that somebody comes by and talks to them about the research that they did. Um, and she would actively take part in these sessions um, and visit like early young like junior researchers and talk to them about their science which is to be fair like whenever i was at conferences it was rare that you had like the directors of international internationally uh, acclaimed research institutions come by and talk to you about your phd project um usually you would find like other phd students maybe some postdocs that would come by um but not like the very big players they would have coffee with the other directors and i mean i had a really leaders. big player come by and look at my um poster except they didn't want to talk about my poster they wanted to talk about the fact that my name sounded very interesting and foreign and exotic oh my <laughs> fun times <laughs> <laughs> yeah but yeah cool so yeah the people, <laughs> thank you joanne so yeah seeing joanne doing that uh, they were like they say that it really made a difference in how these junior researchers saw themselves as scientists um yeah um unfortunately there were also like sort of dark spots in her in her um in her, in her life or still are i mean she's still alive in 2004 she was diagnosed with parkinson's disease and she also made that known to the members of her lab and in in the washington post article it, it describes like a very emotional scene where like her lab is devastated because they have a very sort of personal and productive way to to engage with one another and hearing that she has this 
this disease that can be treated but not be cured um, was, was devastating. But for her, she took this as uh, a way to take greater risks and sort of say, um, let's do it anyway. Um, I'm like, my time is limited, so I will not just try to be careful now. Um, and she, she, she got treatment for like a decade or so. She, the treatment could sort of suppress most of the symptoms, but then later on it became more and more severe. Um, but that led to her pushing towards um, another big initiative, the Harnessing Plants Initiative. And I don't know if you've heard about this before, um, but this is the idea that um, plants are really good at taking carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, which is not a big surprise, right? Like it's photosynthesis. It's what they do. <laughs> so there could be, sure. <laughs> there is a potential that we use that to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere by creating new kinds of plants that um, put a lot of um, carbon dioxide in um into their organisms in a way where it's fairly stable and there is such a um, compound it's called suberine and suberine is a compound of cork so if you imagine like the cork bark on cork trees um, it contains suberine mo molecules and um, this suberine is like very stable like microorganisms have a really hard time of breaking it down that's why also like mm -hmm. cork is fairly like you you rarely find like mold growing on a piece of cork on a bottle because um, I, I guess it probably is also treated a little bit, but also like mold has a hard time breaking this down. Um, so if plants would make more suberine, suberine is like this massive molecule that contains so many carbon atoms. So if they would make a lot of it, they would store a lot of carbon and then they put it in the roots. So they make they, they are engineering plants to make larger roots and deeper roots that contain more suberine. And with that, you have like these massive underground storages of a carbon compound and if you would grow a lot of these plants for example if crop plants would do this then this could um, have a big impact on carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere that's the plan of the harnessing plants initiative and she presented that to the ted audacious project and that's where she got um, a lot of funding before that like official funding bodies would ve were very careful or w would not give her any money essentially but then giving like a very public talk a speech about this um, she got like from a Ted Audacious project um, uh, 35 million she got 30 million dollars from um, the Bezos Earth Fund from Jeff Bezos um, and millions more from other companies and now they're like pushing really hard to develop these new plant lines um, first in Arabidopsis, then in, in Brassica napus, so in rapeseed, because it's a very mm -hmm. close relative to Arabidopsis. And they hope that they will later figure out how to put this in other crop plants as well. So that crop plants, while you're growing them, they're storing carbon underground. Which can be problematic. Um, I mean, there's this whole idea about like source-sink relationship. So a plant can only fix so much carbon and usually we want the carbon to go into, for example, the grain, so we can harvest the grain and eat the grain. We usually don't want big roots and big leaves because we don't really eat that in wheat or corn or anything. So I guess there, there, there will have to be like some tweaking and finding the right balance of sort of still having a good yield, but also storing some carbon underground. But I found this uh, a pretty cool idea, and maybe there's like something where you don't do it maybe in crop plants, but in other plants on other lands, um, to like cash to, to to fish carbon out of the atmosphere um but yeah i, I found it uh quite an inspiring 
live and so i'm linking to jen Torrey, like the washington post article there's a cool pr uh, profile on her from the scientist um a link to the harnessing plant initiative and also to her ted talk it's like a 12 minute video that uh, where she talks about her own um her research and her, the plan that she has in this in this initiative let's talk 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 about bias bias Okay, so I'm going to diverge from what we usually talk about, which is like cognitive bias and bias within the scientific fields, and instead talk about something very molecular biology, which is the idea of codon bias. Um, so first, um, we should probably discuss what a codon is very quickly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so if you think about the genetic code, it's made of these four letters. Um a T A T C G Exactly A T C G and we have more amino acids than four. So you can't directly translate uh, a base in the genetic code to something that's an amino acid in a protein. So the way to translate one to the other is um, instead of using just individual bases, you use sets of three. And so you look um, on the genetic code for a start position and there's a, a group of three that defines the start and then you continue in groups of three forward every group encodes individual individual amino acid that's get added to the peptide to protein chain that's growing and in the end you get a protein that's made from a gene and um, stuff in the cell continues um, but there's a problem there yeah so um the problem is basically that if you think about three positions in the codon, one, two, and three, and each of these can be any of four letters, it's A, C, G, and U instead of T because we're talking about RNA going to protein now. So A, U, C, and G. So there's four different bases and three positions, and that means that the amount of combinations of those, those three you can have is four times four times four, which is 64. So we have 64 different codon possibilities. But we actually only have 20 different amino acids that make proteins. So that means that either some of the codons are going to be doing nothing, which is not really the case. I mean, there's three of them that tell, they say stop instead of making an actual amino acid. They just say, hey, stop, stop the sausage. We've finished. Cut it off here. <laughs> Done. Proteins made. Um, but there's still 61 left. And all of those 61 do encode for amino acids each. It's just that some of them... Um, they're coding for the same amino acids. So there's amino acids which have multiple different codons. And in fact, most amino acids of the 20 have more than one codon, and some of them have even six different codons. Yep. So an example of that, um, I'll go really quickly. I've got a list here. Leucine. If you want to make a leucine, it's an amino acid called leucine. You can make that by using C-U-U, C-U-C, C-U-A, C-U-G, or you can use U-U-A or U-U-G. And all of those six different codines, they make the same thing. They make leucine. But codon bias is the fact that not all of those six make leucine equally. So although all six make leucine, when you see a leucine in a protein, it's not equally likely to come from either of those six combinations. Some of them are preferred by the organism. So um, in Arabidopsis, for example, if we're talking still about leucine, 
Um, one of those combinations is CTT. And more than a quarter of all leucines that you see in proteins were encoded by CTT. Yeah, and you would Whereas, expect it if it's sort of just by random chance, each of these, that you would just have a sixth of them mm-hmm. be encoded by them instead of a quarter sort of a yes. much higher proportion. And that's where the bias comes in, right? So it's biased towards... That's the bias. The ones... Yeah, and if, if there's ones that have more likelihood of sort of being used, um, there's others which have are, are less preferred. Yeah. Um, so, like, kind of a long story short, there seems to be a preference for making leucine... Um, and all of the different amino acids from certain codes over the other alternative codes. And we're not entirely sure all of the background of how this came about, but it seems to be something to do with regulation. So um, if some um, if some codons are like a bit harder to read maybe for the same thing, that might slow down the process of making those proteins. And this is really a simplification, but yeah. that's basically the idea. Um so it's it's regulation and there's a regulation at the stage of turning that RNA into protein, which is translation. There's translational regulation um, that's linked to this codon bias. So the reason I came up with this today is that there's been some recent studies, um, one that came out in PNAS early this year, um, and it's by Fang Zhou Zhao and colleagues, um, and it's called Genome-Wide Role of Codon Usage on Transcription and Identification of Potential Regulators. And in this paper, and also in sort of other research that has been done by the same group, the scientists say, okay, this codon bias is allowing for regulation at that point where RNA becomes protein, so at translation, but we reckon we've found evidence that it's also somehow influencing the way that DNA becomes RNA. So it's also codon bias is somehow influencing transcription. Mm-hmm. And that's a little bit harder to understand because when you think about the the RNA going to um, the protein, you can understand how maybe it's easier to read certain combinations like if i see a cug maybe i just read that more rapidly than a cuu it might just be easier for the protein machinery to read that so it makes it it's like it's quite obvious how that regulation could happen but when you then say there's regulation based on that translation going back to the dna you're now one step removed and it's a little bit Mm -hmm. harder to understand um, but these scientists, they did some studies in um, a species called Neurospora. So that's a, a kind of a fungi, I think, that looks, it has a name because it looks like neurons. So it looks kind uh-huh. of like these like long, it's actually quite pretty. I suggest you go and Google image that one. Um, <laughs> it's a model fungi species. And they say that they found evidence that the there is regulation at this transcription level as well. Now, the reason I find this all quite interesting is because this has been published in February and then just um, maybe a week or two ago, um, no, even this this week, um, there came a response to this study. So other scientists read this study and they said, okay, we see what you've done here, but we're not sure we agree with the conclusions of your study based on the experiments that you've done. And they're saying that there's another bias that's involved here on top of the the codon bias 
they're saying that what those scientists were seeing was a correlation between the codon bias and the amount of transcripts made to this transcription process. But they're saying that's not causation. So you can't link that back to actual regulation and actually kind of an active process. It's just a correlation. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we all know about correlation versus causation as a bias. So they then responded to this. And of course, um, quite commonly when we have these debates like in a formal magazine setting in a journal, the authors themselves then responded again to that statement and explained from their point of view in the context of the broader literature why they think actually they are correct and their interpretation um, is correct. So you can go and have a look at these these papers. They're, they're in PNAS. If, if you're interested, we'll put the links. Um, unfortunately, they're not all open access. Um, they are behind the paywall. But I think it's PNAS. So I think, like, I think PNAS comes out six months after their... I think they become open after six months. I, I don't know, but it could be, yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I wanted to kind of draw it up because I, I think this is a really interesting example of how science can still work and the fact that once something is published, it doesn't necessarily mean it's finalized. Um, and there can there should still be scientific discourse and there can still be, and there can be different fields of thoughts. And sometimes that's problematic because sometimes we have that kind of U.S. politics thing where everything <laughs> becomes super divided and somebody's either like team elephant or team donkey and actually you basically have the same beliefs and you just want to be divisive. Sometimes it's not great. But if it's done in the correct way and politely, it can also be a really interesting discussion and it can improve the science because, you know, if one team's saying, I'm not sure I believe this based on the evidence you've got, the next step you could do is, you know, go and get more evidence, um, exactly. which could then you know, strengthen the argument one way or another, and it could potentially um, be a win. So, yeah, I wanted to bring up the codon bias in the context of this paper and the response, which says that there's a correlation versus causation bias to um, discuss the overall kind of idea of publications and sort of what we think and how we think of publications as being a final word and what the reality is as they exist in this like body of continuous scientific literature. I think that's kind of a cool example. Yeah. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. So yeah, I brought um, a fact that puts the blame on you, Tegan, for having too many houseplants. Because I read that peat-based... <laughs> I already got sent this. Somebody already chamed me. <laughs> um, so yeah, apparently, and I like... I have to say apparently because I I don't really have house plants um, or the I don't care for the plants that are in my house so I can't really say anything on that but um, wow somebody- shifting the blame to your wife there <laughs> no I think um, my my wife is perfect she doesn't use peat in her soils that's what uh, this whole story is about it's a story that was sent to me on Twitter by Apple Chew they sent me this story from the Telegraph um, that was talking about um, the problem of peat being a key ingredient in houseplant soils and we find it very often there and so peat is this um, fossil fuel it's um, made up it's sort of created in wetlands it's regenerating but very very slowly much slower than we are harvesting it um it sort of recreates at like one millimeter per year um and we're taking much more than one millimeter per year in these in these uh wetlands um 
so peat is very carbon rich it's a very good it's a very fertile soil and it holds a lot of water which is really useful when you want to water your plant only from time to time and the soil should retain the water long enough so that the plant can can use it um so that's why it's used in in um in gardening soils but it's also why it's problematic because we're taking it from wetlands that are their own sort of very diverse um, ecosystems and um, harvesting peat is destroying these ecosystems and in the article they talk about like um, a movement to, uh, away from peat in in plants as um, a plant uh, a gardener um, Harriet Thompson in uh, in the Un in United Kingdom, um, and they sell these um, peat-free house plants. They have like an entire online shop with lots and lots of common, um, often tropically derived plants that uh, are all grown on peat-free soils. Um, other mm -hmm. people say that they would like to sell peat-free plants but there's not really the demand for it and peat is still fairly cheap to put in in gardening soil so going away from peat means having a more expensive substrate means having more extra expensive plants means customers don't really want to buy them because they don't understand why the plant is more expensive when it's the soil that has a different composition and therefore um they even other salesmen that are selling peat-based plants they would be very happy if the customers would move away from this but as long as the customers don't they don't change what they're offering because then um you know typical market stuff they would just get their plants and somewhere else uh the artic article continues to suggest that you can sort of repot your own plants to a peat-free soil where I don't really see the... And then just throw the peat away. Yeah, <laughs> throw exactly. It in the bin. <laughs> I don't really see the point of it. Like, once you bought Maybe it... Maybe eat it. Maybe that's the, yeah. the way to recycle it. It doesn't really... I mean, if you buy new soil, maybe don't buy new bags yeah, of peat soil. Yeah, don't buy extra peat. <laughs> but if your plant contains already peat, just leave it there. Like... Don't throw it away. Buy really small plants and then let them grow bigger in non-peat soil, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I think I think there's a really valid point here. Like, there, whenever something becomes very popular, there's this huge potential for exploitation, and that's just what happens in our current capitalist system. But there was also a part of me. So I got sent this story this morning. There was also a part of me that was just like. This is just boomers blaming millennials <laughs> for having some joy. <laughs> like, first it was the avocados. <laughs> but it's like, uh, I mean, I, there's, there's these whole discussions about why houseplants are so popular in the younger generation. And a lot of it is like, they can't afford their own housing and they can't afford to have children and they don't have stable careers. So, like having a plant is not a pet and not a child and that's it. So it, it does strike a nerve for me a little <laughs> yes. bit there. Um, but I do absolutely agree that like, yeah, if there is awareness about the cost, the non-financial costs. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, that would be great. And from what I understood, it's like a problem that's particularly bad in the United Kingdom because the peat that's oh, no. sourced in the United Kingdom comes from areas that are more, um, sort of endangered than other sourced peats like uh, from Scandinavian countries there's like very large areas where peat is sort of naturally I don't know if, what the right word is growing accumulating and 
Um, sourcing it from there doesn't do as much damage because the area, the wetlands are just so very big that they can sort of um, regrow and regenerate before we can harvest them all. But in the United mm -hmm. Kingdom, the wetlands have been reduced so much already that now also taking the peat is coming at a much higher cost. And so... Uh, yeah, the problem again is like the exploitation, right? It's yeah. not the... Yeah. yeah, it's the fact that something is being overused and there's not proper regulation, which yeah is definitely yeah. an issue. I have um a really a really quick one. Just I was looking again, trolling through the literature earlier today, and I found something that came out in Plant Cell Reports by Akanda and colleagues, and it's a simple and efficient agro infiltration method for transient gene expression in citrus. So this is just basically a way of getting foreign genes into a citrus plant and this can be really useful um, for understanding sort of what genes do so you can put something into the citrus that like maybe influences how another gene works and then from that you can find out what that gene does and that can be really helpful for then breeding different citrus varieties but citrus has been a little bit hard um, to transform so we have methods to genetically transform lots of plants but it's not not all plants are created equal. It's really easy to transform some, like Arabidopsis, and it's really, 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 really hard to transform others. Um, and citrus is a little bit difficult. One of the reasons is probably because it has quite um, waxy leaves, so it's hard to get, like, to force stuff in there. Um, and in the study, they used something called a microneedle roller um, to sort of first, like, roll the leaves and make little, like, small wounds on the, the epidermis, so the upper layer of the leaf, before they then did this infiltration of the agrobacteria, which contains the foreign DNA that goes into the, the plant cells. And I was just like, what is a microneedle roller? So I Googled it. <laughs> and Yoram's going to Google that now and have a quick look at it. Go, 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 image it. It sounds terrifying because I know... Um... It does sound terrifying. And when you think of terror the obvious thing that comes to mind is beauty. Is this, yeah, I see now a ton of beauty products. Um, mm -hmm. And so people use that on their skin because I know, like when I think of microneedles, I think of like these microscopy needles um, where you can manipulate individual cells and you have like a capillary, uh, okay. like a glass tube that becomes thinner, thinner, thinner to the point where you can't see it with your eye anymore, but it continues and becomes like smaller than the diameter of a cell. And then you can poke cells with it under the microscope and inject stuff. And these things are so dangerous because if you poke your skin, it goes right through it because it's uh. smaller than a, 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 a skin cell. And then it breaks off. And then you have a fragment of glass somewhere in there that's smaller than a cell that can move about. And therefore, you have to be incredibly careful when you handle these things because you don't want to ha to, to uh, them to end up in your body. So thinking about having micro needles all over my skin makes me just like so incredibly anxious of having these things but i imagine they are not like my my scropis, microscopy grade needles they are like bigger than that right i mean it's like a rolling thing that has little needles and you roll the needles over your face and the idea is that you basically lightly wound your face skin and then the skin is like oh crap i'm wounded i should fix this and then the process makes you prettier maybe it like <laughs> improves your skin i'm not sure what the science i'm not sure if there is science behind it to be honest um 
I've never tried microneedling my face, um, but maybe I'm a dirty and unclean and unbeautiful person. I'm not really sure. I'm not sure if it's it's a good idea, but I do love the fact that what, and I, I wasn't really sure if this was the same thing as the people had used in the lab. So I then went to Twitter and looked up this um I couldn't unfortunately get the, the full text access, so I went to Twitter and saw the graphical abstract showing what they did in the study, and the, what they're using seems to be exactly this facial beauty thingy. So, yeah, I think the story is fun just because they seem to be using a beauty product to transform plants, which is a nice hack, I would say. I mean, from what I from what I'm reading about these now on the spot is that's that what they're made for these micro needle needlers they punch holes in your skin and then when you apply products they penetrate deeper which is pretty much what happened in the application in plants you penetrate the waxy layer and then your agrobacterium solution can penetrate deeper and can actually do its job and here it's what they say as well with the micro needles they punch right through so whatever you're putting on your skin later on can seep into the muscle which is really not something mm. i would like to have ever like my skin has a function and it's to stop things to go to the muscles underneath the skin. I don't think they're very deep needles, but it definitely does make me think like if you're like your skin also has bad bits and there's like bacteria on your skin, especially if you have like acne or something. And it just makes me think that you're moving them around your face. And that seems less. I don't know. I haven't looked into it scientifically and I probably won't be needling myself in the face oh my the I, I just like just on the amazon product page there's like some terrifying diagrams of like like in happy colors how the needles penetrate there but then you look at it and it's like it's penetrating into the base layer and that's good and i'm like no please leave my base layer alone so i have no idea on pain, yeah. the science of it i'm just saying like very personally i find it terrifying I just have a short thing that I want to have mentioned because I talked about this in the past on here. Um, the whole deal with European Union and European Court of Justice and how we hate CRISPR in plants. There has now been a study that was, um, uh, what's the word, like sort of ordered by the European Commission on new genomic techniques. Um, so CRISPR and the stuff to use in plants. And this um, sort of, study funded by the European Commission came to the conclusion that the current regulation is unfit to the for the new breeding technologies. Science and technology has advanced much further than what the regulation is sort of trying to regulate, so they are calling for a change in regulation, which is um, from the point of view of somebody who l would like to see more breeding technologies in plants because science says it's fine, um, and that's my point of view. My personal point science of view. Says, science, science says it's fine. Science says like <laughs> reference Yoram. We, we, we ask science. Science says it's okay. Um, sure, Yoram. And um, so that means like they they are calling for new regulation in Europe, and I don't know when that will happen and so on. But it's very interesting that a government-funded study had such a clear and strong statement in the end. It was like, look, the current regulation is just not working. It's not fit for what it's trying to regulate, we have to change that. Um, so yeah, so maybe in a couple of years' time, maybe there will actually be CRISPR in, a, in the European Union, but maybe not. We'll see. I'm going to put some money down on not. Yeah, probably not. We're betting. Um, I have an update on germinating really, really old plants. And I think we've discussed this before. We might have even discussed exactly these plants. So... Um, 
recently there was ancient date palms, which um, there were seeds which were maybe over 2,000 years old. Um, date seeds that were found um, in the southern Levant. And they were germinated and they managed to grow plants out of them. And there's an update, I think, on that previous research um, saying that they've now uh, looked at the genome, looked at, um, mm-hmm. they've sequenced these these plants to see how they are genomically. And the point of this is that by looking at these old dates, they can compare them to modern dates and look at how the dates have sort of evolved and been selected for in sort of recent timing. So going back to these old specimens is helping understand the evolutionary history of these plants specifically, but also, you know, more more broadly how, how plants are doing things and, and, you know, gaining and losing genes over time. And in this case, there seems to be some sort of like... Um, a bit of mixing with some a related species or like a, a a cousin species as well that's happened. So it's kind of cool, and I also I, I like this these kind of studies that also look um, at more recent samples. So people are going to like museums and sort of like fossil records and stuff, and also looking. Um, I mean, fossil records really long time ago. I guess the date palms somewhere in between, and then museum specimens tend to be only a couple of hundred years old. But sort of looking at these. Yeah. Uh, recent and, and further back histories to understand how things have changed um, in the past. Yeah, I find it in itself incredible to have to whenever people are germinating these old seeds. Like we had seeds, like stories in the past, also from like permafrost and other sources where they not only found seeds that were identifiable as seeds, but also could still germinate. And then you suddenly grow this plant that hasn't been grown for thousands of years. That in itself is crazy. But then once you have the plant material, of course, you open up this whole world of new experiments that you can do. I find that really Mm. cool. Uh, I have a story about uh, mangroves and microplastics. Um, There's been a study where they looked at the microplastic content in mangrove forests, um, so-called blue forests, that are um, forests that are growing at the sea level or below the sea level. And uh, that are things like mangrove, seaweed, seagrass, and marsh plants. And um, these plants, they absorb quite a lot of carbon that they also put into the soil below them. But together with the carbon that that they're absorbing, um, they apparently also absorb microplastics because people were sampling... um, They were sampling these soils and they found microplastics there. And... That can be worrying because microplastics can be ingested by animals, uh, especially in these blue forests. There can be quite a lot of animals um, living in there that can then eat these microplastics that could potentially harm them, um, both by like sort of just clogging intestines, um, by accumulating. Um, so it's worrying that we find microplastics there. On the other hand, we have found microplastics so far pretty much everywhere we found them in deep sea samples pretty much everywhere um we found them in lettuce and tomatoes i think inside um yeah at least i'm not sure tomatoes but lettuce uh, in in vegetables in vegetables in fish um uh, from, from like in sea sea water fish and uh so we found that f- we find them quite a lot and so far i think a lot of the the problem that we see is that we worry about the effect of it 
but um, in some cases we could prove it, but in very in many cases we haven't seen an Im immediate toxic effect yet, so I'm always torn between worrying about them or not. I mean, it's definitely not good that they're everywhere, because, I mean, plastic is not meant to be everywhere. Um, but at the same time, it seems to be fairly inert, so it's just... I don't want to say it's just another place where we found them, um, but... <laughs> Even, they are there now. Yeah, they are yeah. also now in mangrove forests. Um, I have uh, something that is um, um, kind of gross, I would say. <laughs> but maybe just because I find nematodes gross. So, I don't know if you know this fact, Yoram, but nematodes... You, you know what a nematode is, right? Yeah, these, like, little... Um worm-like things that you can like I, we actually bought nematodes to fight ants because we have quite a lot of ants mm -hmm. in the garden and you can buy them they come as a sort of white powdery bag you dissolve them in water and then you water yeah. the places where the ants are because the nematodes are like little worms i think that eat mm -hmm. the eggs of the ants and the ants and i think maybe even the ants themselves but they're sort of microscopic worms yeah, so they're just like nematodes are just a group of simple, like simple worms. Um, they're not segmented, so it's not the same as an earthworm, but it's it's a bit like more of a basic uh, life form. Um, and they're they're everywhere, and there are some like parasitic ones, but yeah, a lot of them are also beneficial. Um, and they're basically at all levels of the food web, doing all different things. You know, helping with soil processes and and you know. Yeah, eating pests, but can also be destructive and can eat plants. Um, the disgusting thing about nem nematodes, from my point of view, is that they are thought to be the most abundant multicellular organisms on Earth. So, worms, worms, everywhere worms. And I like worms, but I'm not sure that I like nematode worms because, like, earthworms, I don't imagine an earthworm ever going inside my body, whereas a nematode, like, I associate that with, like, these more parasitic, disgusting... <laughs> yes. Sorry, nematodes. It's not your fault. I know a lot of you are good, but... Um, <laughs> Gross. <laughs> Hashtag not all nematodes. Uh, <laughs> not all nematodes. Anyway, um, there was a study that came out in JXB in March this year by uh, Victor et al. And it basically shows that plants can kind of selectively attract uh, nematodes to themselves. They're kind of summoning nematodes. Oh. Um into their vicinity. <laughs> um, basically, they're using um, a secondary metabolite, so some sort of chemicals that the plants um, produce, and these can be good or bad to different nematodes. So producing these, um, they're called benzozazanoids. Um, that's the name <laughs> of the, the chemical. Um, but the zazanoids, benzozazanoids, <laughs> that's probably wrong. Um yeah, they can they can basically uh, encourage um, nematodes or or uh, make them go away. And it's previously been shown that these um, okay, I'm going to call them BXs for short. These BXs <laughs> can also um, the presence of them in the soil produced by the plant can affect the amount of fungi and the amount of bacteria that are around the roots and this can be obviously very helpful to the plant because it can help like mobilize nutrients in the soil or like defend against other bad pathogens um, but this is just the next step that now they're not only doing it with the fungi and the bacteria they're also calling on the worms um, <laughs> so I think it's, it's kind of cool just because it's a nice example of how everybody's working together and you know if you want to really look at it from the plants point of view the plants are controlling 
everything. <laughs> They're sitting in the center of this web yeah, of like yes. nematodes, fungi, and bacteria, and everything working for them. Yeah. Gathering nutrients. Um, yeah. I think um, now it's time to move to the cat fact. I have a terrible cat fact, but maybe we can make up for it uh, with the sort of thing that just came in today. It's your terrible cat. <laughs> cat fact. I think this is our worst cat fact yet. Um, although it is linked to plants, oh dear. but not plants power plants um oh, no. i found a story in a science mag um about salt creatures um and it's a story about like surface science some like chemical stuff i don't understand it um they're apparently using some like nanostructures instead of microstructures and so salt molecules can't adhere to them and so you don't get this like crust of salt but you the salt makes little salt creatures and this is where the animal part comes in if you look okay. at the video you see sort of see like a blob of salt and then it has sort of legs below it that grow out and then they become too long and it breaks off and washes away and this is the whole point of the setup so the salt is washed away because it can't attach in a hard manner to it it sort of just has like these weird little legs that it attaches so it looks like little creatures and it's in power plants and so that's why it's in the section of the cat fact today i actually found it by while looking for like plant science stuff and whenever i look for plant science on google news i sometimes get like power plant science um yeah, I have the same problem when I'm looking for like at PubMed for literature. Sometimes they put Arabidopsis, but then I just don't want it all to be Arabidopsis. I want like weirder plants, but then you end up getting these like weird yeah. power plants in factories, and then I just feel depressed about <laughs> the state of the world. I mean, the video is 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 fun to see with the growing salt crystal. But the thing to make up for it is uh, we we both saw images of giant moths, right? I would yeah, also not a cat fact, but when I did see this moth, I thought that is big enough to pat and could be a good pet. It's um did it give a size? It's quite large. The the image um it's in Australia, of course. If you're thinking of giant insects, it should be in Australia. The image shows a man holding like a full-on saw and there's this moth sitting on the edge of the saw, and I would say it's about the size of like an average guinea pig, maybe. They say it's like 30 grams and a wingspan of 25 centimeters. And okay, 30, 30 grams is not as big as a guinea pig. That's much Yeah, smaller. but I mean, like, a moth is very light, so it can fly. But if you would put it on, like, a grown no, man's hand, it would cover fly. the whole hand. This one can't fly potentially because it's um, it's potentially too heavy to fly even. Okay. It's a giant wood moth, um, the heaviest moth in the world. They were basically um, in Queensland, so in the northeast of Australia. They were trying to make new um, classrooms, and they found these huge... Um, bulky females so the females are about twice the size of the male moths and they were just hanging around and apparently then they asked the students to write stories about these moths and the <laughs> students just wrote about insect invasions which i think <laughs> tells you something about the trauma of living in queensland <laughs> <laughs> yeah they also wrote about their teacher getting eaten alive by a giant wood moth. So that's nice. <laughs> Kids are jerks. <laughs> and that's before they even saw the moth. They were just like, oh, I wish my teacher yeah. was eaten. <laughs> uh, I think with that, we can end the show. Um, 
Thank you for listening. Uh, you can get in contact with us on social media. On Twitter, you can talk to me. Uh, That's at Plants Be Pets. On Instagram and Facebook, at Plants and Pets. It's usually me. We also have a website, plantsandpipettes.com, where we're soon restarting our regular schedule of talking about like one or two stories from the world of plant science every week. Yeah, we reposted a story um, for May the 4th Be With You Day um, a couple of days back this week. Um, it's about promoters, which are the DNA sequences that control how and where and how much of a gene is made. Um, it's talking about promoters and re-envisioning them as the handles of lightsabers and it was a really fun post to write i wrote it about two years ago and i i read this and i just immediately had this idea of it as lightsabers and it was really fun it was also really fun to make yoram draw the lightsabers yeah especially because my communication was terrible because i was just like okay yoram i've written the post and now you draw the pictures the promoters are lightsabers <laughs> and yoram was just like what what this is not <laughs> but you have to explain your artistic vision <laughs> But then I had a lot of fun um, drawing those um, because, I mean, it's fun yeah. to come up with lightsabers. and it then also cool. Lightsabers that change their conformation so you can turn them on, which was uh, a fun concept to, to visualize. So uh, you can su support us. Um, there's a link down below in the description um, on plantsandpipettes.com slash support if you like this show. Somebody recently did and that made me really happy. So thank you so much. I think there wasn't a name attached to it. So I'm just thanking the general audience thank you so much for that and um our opening and closing music is caravana by philip gross thank you and until next time goodbye